I have seen this with other people I know in the field, and there are actually papers documenting this where sex researchers will say they feel shameful about what they do and they don't want to tell people what they do because people judge them. And I, I don't feel right. It's as though I'm saying that there is something wrong with what I do if I feel I have to hide that. And a lot of people will say, I'm sure you get this too, will tell you that they they love what you do and they actually might have considered doing what you do as well. But because of the societal stigma and shame, they didn't. And I think that's really a shame as well. Hello, everybody. You're listening to Chatting with Candice. I'm your host, Candice Horback. Before we get started on this week's episode, if you want to support the podcast, you can go to chattingwithcandice.com. From there, you can sign up for our Patreon account where you get early access to episodes, shout outs, and eventually some live AMAs. You can also click that little link that says buy me coffee. Both things help me out a ton. Every dollar counts, especially because I'm just getting started. This week, we have our first return guest. We have Dr. Deborah So. I was really excited that she wanted to come back on and discuss a little bit more about herself, as well as some much requested content around fetishes, sex, and porn. So this is going to be a lot of fun. I hope you enjoy the episode. First of all, yeah, thank you for coming back on the podcast. You are my first repeat guest, so that's awesome. like a little <laughs> milestone. Um, I was really excited because we didn't get to talk a lot about um, you, and there was a lot of other topics that a lot of my listeners were like, oh, why didn't you talk about fetishes or um, porn or sex addiction, all of these things? Um, so first, I wanted to kind of get into what got you into sex research because I feel like um, you – you talked a little bit about it in your book where it's a little bit taboo, even though you're on the research side. And I find that there's got to be maybe like a sense of authenticity in that decision making for you. At least it was for me when I decided to get into the business. It's like, you know that this is taboo and some people are going to be like, what are you doing? This isn't the right thing. But you like remained true to yourself and your values and then you steered in the direction that you saw fit. Um, so what was your journey there? Absolutely. I would say, I mean, sex is, it still remains really taboo today, as I'm sure you know. And I think that's really unfortunate. I don't think there's any reason why it should be so stigmatized. So for me, I just happened to come across a sex research when I was still in school and I didn't know such a thing existed, but I thought it was so fascinating. And I thought it was also interesting to see people's reactions when I would tell them about the research I was doing, because I found that it would usually fall into one of two camps. People would either get really excited and say, oh my, oh my goodness, that's so that's so cool. Tell me more about it. Or they would get really put off and uncomfortable. And I do write about this in The End of Gender. And so part of my decision to continue on in sex research is because, well, number one, it, it was so fascinating to me and it still remains that way. And I still keep on top of the newest studies as they come out. I stay close with many of my colleagues and friends in the field. Um, but it's also, I just felt we should be able to talk about this in a very open way, just as we would talk about anything else. And I, I often give the example, if I were studying something else, like say birds, there would be no shame in that. I'd be able to talk about that all day long. So that would probably be the, 
the core reason, I think. But it also for me, I mean, in my personal life, I'm very, I consider myself to be an open-minded person. Mm -hmm. That's very important to me. And it's also very important that the people in my life are like that as well. So when you study sex or when you write about sex research for a living, as I do now, it's a really good filter in terms of you can tell right away certain things about somebody the minute they find out what you do. And if people want to judge me based on that and avoid me and not get to know me because of that, I, I actually like that because it tells me also that this is probably someone who's we're not going to have the same sort of approach in life. I don't think you necessarily have to agree, agree with somebody mm-hmm. in terms of your opinions, but I think just that openness to be willing to talk about things and understand people and, and to not judge someone just because they may be pursuing a line of work that you might not understand. That's, that's important to me. I couldn't agree more. There was a really long time where I would get a lot of anxiety when it came to introducing myself to somebody and the you know line of questioning is almost standard for everyone. It's like, well, what do you do? And I hate lying. Like it's one of my like one of like my core values is like truth. So like even when it comes down to like a stranger and like a you know superficial meeting, maybe I'll never meet this person again. Like I hate lying about what I do because I feel like when I do that, it's saying like I'm shameful of certain decisions. So I kind of just like leaned into it and I had, I have a similar mindset as you do, which is like, it's a great filtration process. And I've had to revisit this with like having a kid recently. And it's like, well, what, what do I do when other parents of his friends, maybe like you can't play with him anymore because his mom is X, Y, Z. And I'm like, wow, that's going to be terrible. But it's also a great way of just rooting out people that maybe don't have that curiosity or that open mindset um, or that are accepting, they're going to be very critical people. So I don't want them in my in my close circle, anyways. So it's a really good and healthy way, I think, to like reframe it. Um, yeah, where that totally. You- re- oh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say that resonates with me too because I I feel if I because I I have seen this with other people I know in the field, and there are actually papers documenting this where sex researchers researchers will say they feel shameful about what they do and they don't want to tell people what they do because people judge them, and I I don't feel right. It's as though I'm saying that there is something wrong with what I do if I feel I have to hide that, and a lot of people will say I'm sure you get this too will tell you that they they love what you do and they actually might have considered doing what you do as well, but because of the society societal stigma and shame they didn't and I think that's really a shame as well so where do you think that comes from or I guess is lingering from especially because you're you're like this professional researcher you're looking at it from much a much more sanitized way if you will versus like what I do like I I get people having an issue with what I do but with on your end I'm like what's wrong with that you know we should be researching this thing it's a biological need really so we shouldn't leave it unattended. So where is that coming from? I think it's comfortable for people to just not question the the ideas that they have. I mean, for you, I find it really hypocritical that people would judge someone like you because I would say the vast majority of people enjoy looking at <laughs> porn. So you know, why are we why are we punishing people who who do that line of work? Um, I think it's like anything. It's just it's it's uncomfortable to question your your values in some cases and. Mm. Um, because there, there aren't many people out there saying the things that you and I say, I think that's part of it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just not enough voices or yeah. Cause judgment sucks on either end, right? Like you don't want to feel like a bad person or you don't want to feel like you're not accepted. Um, but at the same time you want to be like authentic to yourself. So when you were doing research, what were your like main areas of focus? I was using brain imaging techniques. So that includes functional MRI or 
better known as fMRI, structural MRI to look at uh, human sexuality. So I was looking at paraphilias, which are unusual sexual preferences. I was looking at hypersexuality, which is known more commonly as so-called sex addictions and as well porn addiction. We can talk about those two topics because they don't actually, there's no research to bear them out in, in the context of being addictions. Mm-hmm. Um, there def- there's definitely some people struggle with uh, excessive sexual behavior, but I wouldn't call it an addiction. And then I was also looking at sexual orientation and gender. Mm-hmm. So with the sexual, would you say paraphernal, para paraphilias, paraphilias, is that that's similar to fetishes? Yeah. So fetish, a fetish is technically a sexual preference for an object or body part. So it's a, it's a kind of paraphilia, but when people say fetishes or kinks, that's essentially what it is. What okay. I was saying. Yeah. And is there like a reason that you got interested in like that particular study? Because I remember, I don't know if it was like in an interview or if it was in the book, but you're like, I'm kind of like, I'm I'm surprisingly like vanilla when it comes (laughs) to like your preferences. And I was like, well, there's got to be something that drew your attention there. It's because it is so, like you said, I am vanilla. People never believe me, but I am. I'm very actually (laughs) old fashioned and traditional and monogamous in my relationship. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I am dating somebody, so it was a way for me to, I think, see almost live vicariously through the people mm-hmm. I interviewed. And mm-hmm. in, the, in the context of research and doing clinical work before, I've interviewed hundreds of people about their sex lives. And I just love it because I think you learn so much about someone. And also, I, I love that I can apply this knowledge in other areas. So even when I wasn't doing research, people people love to ask me questions about their lives or their friends' lives or people they know. Um, and when they find out that you do this work, the people who do find it fascinating, they usually have a whole litany of questions. So I, I love that. I love seeing what people are are interested to talk about and what they want to know. So with the research aspect of it, um, did you kind of, did you tie in psychology as well? Or were you looking more of just like the neurochemistry with the fMRIs? So my degree is technically in psychology, but I was studying neuroscience because we were looking at the structure and function of the brain. Mm -hmm. So I was looking at brain networks that were involved in sexual arousal, and I was Mm -hmm. looking at the difference between men who were paraphilic. So they they were very they had multiple paraphilia. So they were very kinky. They had a lot of different. when I say, I want to be clear, actually, when I talk about paraphilias, I think whatever you're into is perfectly acceptable so long as it's consensual. Mm-hmm. So there's no judgment there. Um, but I just, I find it really fun because it, to me, it's so different. So these men were into all kinds of different sexual preferences. And I looked at their brains compared to men who were not. And I also compared them in the context of those who struggled with uh, pornography, excessive sexual behaviors, and trying to understand what does their brain look like uh, when they're struggling with that? Is that akin to an addiction? So with these men that had particular things that turned them on that maybe um, were variant from like the the average bear. So when you talk about like, like a foot fetish, for example, like I feel like that's one of the most common ones that I see, at least on social media and everyone's like talking about. So when you look at something like that, did well, first, did you study, was that a particular area that you researched with was like foot fetishes? That was a common one. Actually, one of the very, one very, very common one was actually an interest in urine, which mm-hmm. is probably, I'm not sure if that's surprising or not, but no, for, me, not it, for, it me. Was, <laughs> for me, it was surprising because, and the other thing I have to say, because people also don't believe, like I, I actually don't look at porn in my personal life. So mm-hmm. when I, for my PhD, that was really the first time I was going digging, looking, and I was like, wow, there's a lot. And there was a lot <laughs> of, a lot of, um, 
uh, I don't want to say what it, some of the other ways that you can describe urine play basically. Mm -hmm. And um, I always try to keep it quite family friendly when I talk about this stuff. So um, yeah, I mean, it, that was one, uh, gynandromorphophilia. So that's a sexual preference for transgender women. So I, I won't talk too much about gender here because we did talk quite a bit about that mm -hmm. in the other um, mm -hmm. episode that I did with you. But that's another very common one. So a sexual interest in women with a penis. Mm -hmm. um, what else is there? BDSM is very common. That was probably the most common. Although I would say BDSM is not the same as masochism and sadism because BDSM is more, um, there's a lot of uh, negotiation, boundaries, it's not a true paraphilia because a true paraphilia is if you look at something like masochism or sadism, the what's um, arousing for someone who's masochistic or sa uh, sadistic. So someone who's masochistic likes being humiliated mm -hmm. and then someone who's sadistic likes seeing their partner being humiliated or mm -hmm. suffering. And so there's a, in that comes a lack of consent. Mm -hmm. So if someone is going to role play that, then there's uh, obviously a consensual aspect. So I'm, uh, again, I think for people who are masochistic or sadistic, it's, it's not a choice. Generally paraphilias are biologically based, but it's, it's your choice what you do with it. So if, if a person chooses to act out in a way that's not consensual, then I have a problem. And I think that should be criminal. But 100%. if someone just, ha if someone just has those fantasies, it's not their choice to be into what they're into. So I, I, I ask that people be uh, less judgmental or not judgmental in those cases. So did you find like a link between, I guess, like a healthy paraphilia and a maybe one that maybe stems from like childhood traumas or maybe lack of confidence, like a coping mechanism, if you will, because I find at least in my ex experience and of talking to a lot of men that have like these fetishes, I think there's, there's healthy ones. And then there's ones that are kind of like a little, um, in like a light bulb, like an indicator of like, you need to focus somewhere else to like heal somewhere else. So when you were doing your research, I guess, I think the BDSM is a good example. Like I would find that BDSM is, uh, like a healthy, consensual way to explore sexuality and then when you start getting more into like the violent type of like like true because I mean you can do get into a hole on certain tube sites um there's some like truly violent performances or exchanges and you can't deny that there's a difference there so I would say like one is healthy and one is maybe stems from like a trauma a psychological trauma perhaps and I don't know if you ever like found that uh, so coming from the perspective of par a true paraphilia is someone's primary sexual preference. So that's mm -hmm. the thing that really excites them. It cannot be changed because it is biological. Okay. I do think, in, uh, you know, life experience probably shapes the, the ways in which, uh, or what someone specifically finds sexually appealing, but the fact that they have a paraphilia is, is laid down in the wiring of their brain very early on. Oh, interesting. So, so I would say with BDSM, because some people are into BDSM, I mean, there are a whole bunch of different reasons, but um, I would say the the violence aspect, there's probably some antisociality there. There's probably, um, again, it could be sadism. So mm -hmm. if, if, that's, if that's someone's primary sexual preference, they, for them, had, uh, not heterosexual, what am I what are they thinking of? Vanilla consensual sex is not going to excite them. So 
in that case, it's again, what their choice of what they choose to do with it. And if they choose to act out on it, there's probably some aspect of antisocial personality disorder. There are probably other factors there. Like you said, there may be trauma, Mm -hmm. but I think BDSM because it is so uh, to me, even BDSM is so common and, and it's almost the new vanilla in some ways because you know it's so mainstream and i think most people who are even a little bit sexually adventurous have experimented a bit so yeah there's a line there because definitely there are some people i would say i've heard stories of of people who will say they're into bdsm but then they may also go down that path of of maybe being violent or non-consensual with their partners which is very unfortunate Um, but i think it comes back to more that person's pro-socialness and um, because you can have a, this preference, but it's not an indication of necessarily whether you're going to act out on it or not, or necessarily whether someone has trauma in their background. So if it's, um, if it's their preferred way of like sexual engagement, so let's say it's, let's go back to like the foot fetish. Um, let's say that person like has to incorporate feet play. Otherwise, like they can't reach climax. Would you say that that becomes like problematic or is that just like hardwiring like that's just part of like their biology and how they were raised and something clicked or imprinted early on and then that's just who they are yeah it probably they probably had some experience some maybe some positive experience with feet when they were younger <laughs> or um yeah feet is such a common one and i don't think that's necessarily a problem or that it's pathological it's only path- pathological if they are going out and interacting with their partners in a non-consensual way so that they can have their sexual needs met in that way. But um, I think if, if men say are, behave, or well, it's primarily men, um, if, if that's what they're into and they're having difficulty finding partners who are into that, then mm-hmm. that's not necessarily an issue with them as long as it's a consensual, uh, the way that they're going about asking their partners. I think for anything, it's probably good to have a conversation very early on if you are dating someone to see where their boundaries are and to not spring anything on them or, or also just not make any assumptions in general. I That's my general uh, advice to anyone when it comes to seeing whether you're sexually compatible because I think there's a, an assumption in our society that if you love somebody that you can work through anything sexually or a lot of couples don't even talk about sex. They just mm-hmm. assume that they'll figure it out. They get married. And I, uh, you know, I see the the effects of that when they've been married for 10, 20 years and they're not having sex because they have very different expectations. So um, that's a bit of a tangent, but <laughs> I, I would say, you know, if you have an unusual sexual interest or preference, I don't think there should be any shame or guilt about it. And just to seek out partners who are, happy to indulge indulge you just as you should be happy to indulge them. Mm -hmm. That's great advice. When it comes to pornography specifically, I've heard a lot of arguments that um, watching too much of it is going to kind of create an addiction. And then through that addiction, it increases your tolerance just as a drug would. And then that's why you get people that start watching the questionable content or the illegal content. Um, And it's not that that person had predispositions it's that it's the porn that's the problem and it's the dopamine hits by tube sites and having like that suggestion pull on the left um that's like okay we'll keep watching keep watching and watch as it like slowly gets more questionable and then all of a sudden i i mean this is gonna it's kind of a leap from what we were just talking about but um i was watching this documentary and this uh the one of the founders was blaming pedophilia on porn. And he said 
that the reason that pedophiles exist is because of a porn addiction and that that tolerance just gets so distorted that that's the only thing that can get them where they need. And I'm like that, I obviously am a little bit biased because I come from that industry, but I just feel like that's a huge overstep. And I would love from a scientist's perspective for you to kind of break that down. Right. So I'll start with the part about pedophilia. Definitely watching too much porn is not going to lead someone to become pedophilic because pedophilia is a paraphilia. This is actually one area that I did study as well. Um, I worked, my supervisor had uh, a million dollar grant from the Canadian government to do brain imaging research on pedophilia because sexual offending is one area of research that does get funded quite readily because public safety is very important. Mm -hmm. And we obviously want to protect children and protect potential victims. So um, it is biological, sexual. So pedophilia, I should define it too, because I think sometimes people can think it means certain things that it doesn't. It's a sexual preference in children under the age of 11. So these are children who are prepubescent. Mm -hmm. Um, So sometimes, I mean, people use the word pedophile to sometimes refer to sexual preference to teenagers, which is not not accurate. Um, That can be hebophilia, which is an interest in kids between 11 and 15. Um, again, it's about con- consent. I do not believe children can consent to sex. So, mm-hmm. um, but in terms of pedophilia, no, it's hardwired in the brain. It's from birth oh, wow. and it's not something that can be learned. Pedophilia. So the sexual interest in children is different from sexual offending though, because it's, uh, someone who's pedophilic, they have the sexual attraction to kids. They may or may not act out on it just as someone who abuses a child may or may not be pedophilic. So people sexually abuse kids, unfortunately, for a a number of different reasons. Sometimes they are sexually attracted to children. And in other cases, it can be because they're antisocial. In some cases, it's because they can't get access to an adult partner. There are a number of different reasons. But 100%, no, it's not due to pornography. It's not something that you learn. Um, And then in terms of the addiction model regarding porn and, and whether it can be people's tastes become more extreme, the more they watch. That's also not true. Mm. If you ask these individuals, they will tell you um, if they feel that they can speak openly about this and not be judged that generally what, whatever it is that they're looking at, the more extreme content is what they like to begin with. It just took them a while to eventually get there to find it, maybe to accept that about themselves it's not something that, again, people learn because the average vanilla man um, is not going to, by vanilla, I mean not kinky, mm-hmm. is not going to enjoy looking at some of these um, categories of pornography. So if anything, he'll probably be quite put off by them. Mm-hmm. So um, I think a lot of that stems from, again, just people being very uncomfortable about sex. And also whenever people have issues in their lives and if there is anything to do with sex uh, or if those issues touch at all on sexuality, people are quick to blame sex as the problem as opposed to looking at what is this really about? What are the underlying causes? What is the root cause? Because that's ultimately what's going to help that person if they are struggling with excessive sexual behaviors or as a, you know, with so-called porn addiction, it's usually... Uh, procrastination and anxiety. So people use porn as a way to cope with stress and to soothe themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you give them better coping strategies so that they don't rely on pornography to feel better, um, then the problem goes away. They're not as reliant on it. They're not spending 
hours. I mean, some of the people I would talk to spend 12 hours a day looking at porn, which is really extreme and obviously mm-hmm. affects their relationships. So people get, some people get upset with me when I, I say this because I, they're struggling and I understand, or they've had relationships that have been affected mm-hmm. by a partner who is struggling. And I definitely empathize with them. And I'm not saying that what they feel is not real. But again, I think if we want to help people who are struggling with this, it's important to talk about it honestly, and to just call it an, an addiction and, and say, you know, in some cases it's because someone does experience a lot of guilt about even having sex, period. So they may not even have a, a, a so-called problem with sex and maybe just having um, a healthy sex drive, but they consider themselves to be an addict because they feel guilty about that. So when it comes to addiction, I think that's also important to like define. So like the little bit of reading and research that I've done on it is like the, the definitions vary vastly. And there's like the old school model that's like addiction is a disease and there's a gene and um, you're kind of this helpless participant, not by your own, by your own decision-making. It's just like you were predispositioned and you found yourself like an alcoholic or you found yourself a sex addict or whatever these things are. And then a lot of the newer neuroscience is saying that it's not necessarily a disease that there's no gene that's kind of been like pinpointed. And we say, ah, like this is the gene for alcoholic or for alcoholics. This is the gene for someone who's going to be predisposition to sex addiction or, or what have you. Um, It's more of like, like habits that have formed. And then these, like these neuro pathways that are just kind of getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's why you keep doing it. So it's all the things that lead up to the, the drink or the porn. So it's like, well, what are your triggers for that? Um, so I guess like, do you, would you say that you're, which camp do you fall in as far as like disease or, um, not, or more of a habit? Probably. Well, I suppose it depends. I would say with drugs and, uh, or illicit substances and alcohol, I mean, the, the, the definition of addiction is repeated use of something in the face of negative consequences. And my understanding is usually there is a genetic component to it, mm-hmm. but that's not to say just because something's biological or someone has a predisposition that they don't have some, uh, free, some will or say in terms of the decisions they make. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think with, when it comes to anything about sex or porn, I wouldn't say it's addiction. I would say, again, it's about, I mean, there are a variety of different presentations. Um, so with por- porn, I would say it's usually procrastination, anxiety, coping skills. Um, with, say, so-called sex addiction, in some cases, it's just people who are very good looking or they have money and they just want to enjoy themselves. And they're probably better off not being in a monogamous relationship because if you are a man and you have women throwing yourselves at themselves at you, this doesn't justify cheating, of course. Mm-hmm. But you know, if you sit and talk to these men, they, they're just in some cases a little bit entitled and they think they should be allowed to have sex with whoever they want. And even if they are married. So in that case, it's, it's just saying, well, maybe you're better off not being in a monogamous commitment. And is it really a problem in that case? Is it that you're addicted to sex or you just enjoy it? And the pro- it's a problem because you're, you've committed yourself to someone else and it's not fair to that other person. But I th- like I, when I look at, say, two years ago, there was a lot in the media about so-called sex addiction, people, mm-hmm. celebrities going off to sex addiction treatment. And I think it's just an easy way for someone to not take responsibility, as much as I feel bad saying that, to just call themselves an addict and say, well, you know, I, I have this and this is, this is 
to blame for the choices I make. Um, in other cases, it's, as I said, you know, some people just feel really guilty about having a healthy sex drive. I think also in a lot of cases, I mean, as human beings, it's very normal to find other people attractive or to even want to have sex with other people and fantasize about other people, even if you are in a committed relationship. And I think because that makes people uncomfortable, they think that's a problem or because it makes their partner uncomfortable, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And there's a difference between how you feel and what you fantasize about and what you actually do. So again, I, I think if you're in a committed relationship, you should not be cheating. That's not ethical. But it's very natural to want to, again, with porn, it's very natural to want to look at other people who are naked and to find that arousing. And if we could just accept that in society, I think that would take a, away a lot of the misconceptions around so-called porn addiction, because a lot of people feel especially if they do have any sort of guilt around those feelings that their desire to look at someone else must be a problem and that that must be pathologized. So do you think part of it's also like an impulse control issue? Like the fact that they're acting on this and knowing like I shouldn't watch porn for 12 hours a day because I need to actually go out and live and, you know, have these real life relationships and I have work and these responsibilities and the same when it comes to someone that has an alleged sex addiction. It's like, well, there's a difference between acknowledging that I'm, I find this person attractive and then acting on it, knowing that it's against the rules or parameters of your relationship. Uh, sexual compulsivity is included in the ICD, which is the international classification of diseases. So that's the Europe's so-called psychiatry Bible. It mm -hmm. is not included in the uh, DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So I just wanted to clarify because from a medical perspective, it is classified as, uh, an, as you mentioned, an impulse control disorder, but it's not classified as an addiction. Mm -hmm. So yeah, for some people, definitely, I mean, I guess you could see it from that from that perspective, but again, it's a different way of conceptualizing it and treating it from addiction because with an addiction model, you would say, okay, well, you just can't have sex. And I don't think for someone who's struggling with uh, hypersexuality that they necessarily have to stop having sex for the rest of their life. I think that they just have to find better ways of managing um, their time probably and also figuring out what is, what is it they're really struggling with and then how can they incorporate their sexuality in a healthy way. And, but I always just want to say that for me, I don't have uh, – because people often will say – she used to write for this magazine that had naked women in it. So of course she's going to say that. Um, but I've had these views. If you go back before I was a journalist, when I was a researcher, I had the same views. And as I said, I'm just about the data and facts. So wherever it takes us, if they do start to show that with say brain studies, that there is a, a, the reward network is changing over time as a result of this, or that, you know, that it is actually an addiction Then I'm happy to change my perspective. But I just think a lot of the, the discussion right now is really unhelpful for people who are struggling because it's not accurate. So when, so we bring it back down to um, some fMRIs and like actual data. So what is, what's the difference between someone who might be addicted to say cocaine versus someone who's addicted to sex? So with a drug like cocaine, you will see that there will be changes in the brain over time. There will often, often be craving as well. So you'll see those parts of the brain light up, even if they're just thinking about the drug or if they see a picture of the drug. Um, we don't have any research to suggest that when it comes to pornography or sex. And, and the research that we do have, because there are some studies that get a lot of attention because they are Supposedly, show that this is happening in the brain 
with um, as a response to so-called sex addiction. But when you look at how they define hypersexuality, usually it's very, very muddied that the people who take part in the study are, um, they are not very similar. So you'll have someone who say, say an addic- uh, a study looking at so-called porn addiction, mm-hmm. someone will be, someone will self-report, say there's one study that got a lot of attention and I looked at the methods and some of the people in the study would be looking at porn once a week for under an hour. And I'm thinking to me, that's not really a problem. When you look at some of the people who are looking at it for 10, 12 hours a day, that to me is a, is a problem, unfortunately. So they shouldn't be lumped together as one because mm. the results that you find are not going to really speak to either. And then the other thing I would say is also because as far as I know, no studies have looked at the, the paraphilias in that context. So if someone has a paraphilia, their brain is going to look different from someone who's not. And if you're not asking these questions as part of your methodology, again, you don't know what's going on with the people that you're scanning in the, in the brain scanner. So um, I think more, I'm definitely in support of more rigorous research being done. I think that's very important. I think it's excellent that we have the uh, technology and the technology continues to improve. But uh, my issue is just when people are quick to jump on a study because they think it fits a particular narrative and they run with that. And, um, and because I would say also, you know, surprisingly it's, it's pretty hostile terrain to counter anti-porn activists. They are, they are, they can be very aggressive and some people in the field have really had to deal with a lot of harassment and intimidation from them. My you know last conversation with you, I talk about how trans activists are bad. Well, <laughs> anti-porn activists are pretty bad too. I'm I'm not sure if you had to do have had to deal with them, but that's another reason why people don't want to touch the research. Oh, that's so interesting. No, I mean I've seen some of the damage that those um, those campaigns can do. I personally haven't been affected by it, so that's that's fortunate because I just don't I don't have the bandwidth to deal with any more any more negativity. Um, so there's. I guess, where did the myth then, because we, we do know with drugs or alcohol that threshold changes, right? Like your tolerance changes. And then that's where um, you start seeing like really negative, at least uh, physical health implications um, start to occur. So where did the myth start with the threshold of like porn or sex start taking place? Because as you said earlier, if someone was being honest and had like this open space to communicate, they would have said like that end content is what they had always been interested in. So where did that narrative come that, you know, they started here at just very like vanilla, you know, just regular sex. And then they ended up all the way somewhere, you know, in the dark web. I would say very early on when this started to become a, uh something how I don't want to call it an industry, but I will I'll call it an industry. When when people start to try and understand this and and ways of treating it, uh, it was overlaid on the addiction model. So I think that was just an early way for people to try and make sense of it. And I think it also helps people distance themselves from not I'm not saying this necessarily about people who struggle with this problem, but maybe the people treating it or they found a way to make it a little bit more palatable. I would say for people to talk about and also for the partners to talk about, because it's understandably really distressing and hard on someone if you're in a relationship with someone who is struggling with this. And it's very shameful to 
talk about it. You, I mean, you can't really talk about it. I mean, the people I would talk, I would see in my research, they, unless they had a very strong social support, they were really isolated because it is such an embarrassing thing to struggle with. And it's also really difficult for their partners because even they don't want to tell family members or friends about it because there is such a stigma around sex. And then also if you have problems with sex. So I think that model probably also help to lessen the stigma, even though I don't think it's necessarily helpful in terms of, let me be very careful with how I say this. Um, I would say, I just think if, again, if you talk to these individuals and, and see what they're really struggling with, you'll see that other methods are probably helpful in terms of um, helping them deal with it. But yeah, I would say the stigma is a big part of it. And also that a lot of, if you actually go and look through the uh, criteria for when you're so diagnosing, quote unquote, diagnosing someone, mm-hmm. um, they will pathologize a lot of behaviors that to me are not pathological. So something like, again, fantasizing about, let me, let me think of a specific one, actually. Something like um, I, voyeurism, I believe, is one of the criteria. And it's been a while since I actually went through the list, but something like voyeurism, if you feel the need to, say, look up women's skirts, mm-hmm. that's not okay. That's not consensual. Um, if, if that's something that's the kinky thing that you do with your partner and you both agree to it, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. But in this context, say, where it's a sexual offense, it's not appropriate to categorize it as an addiction because you need to understand that if it's a paraphilia, which voyeurism is, this is not something that's going to change over someone's life. And any time that they... In, in, want to have sex, that's the thing that they're going to want to do. So that's very different from saying, this is something that we should treat as an addiction, in which case they're not looking at the antisocial aspect of it. And Mm -hmm. they're also basically saying in some way that, um, yeah, I think, I think it would, it's just, it becomes something more about how we talk about it and Mm -hmm. how people identify as opposed to what's really going on. Mm -hmm. So have you worked with um, a lot of couples that one of the partners is going through, I guess they're both going through it, but that has an issue with sex um, and an issue with like remaining, remaining monogamous. Uh, so I don't do clinical work anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not work with couples, but in terms of the people I did see for many of them, I mean, some of them just weren't aware that being non-monogamous was an issue because I think in society we are very much told that there's one way to do relationships and sex and that's the only acceptable way. Mm-hmm. And so I think for them to even uh, conceptualize that it might be okay for them to have multiple sexual partners at once mm-hmm. or to not be in a monogamous commitment um, was yeah really I think surprising for some people. I have I have friends too where I would have conversations with them and they were relieved because I think in some ways again it's the shame but it's also this fear that they're never going to find someone who will accept that about them, mm-hmm. um, which I think is really you know sad. But uh, I'm not sure if that answers your question in terms of I guess the where aspect. where I'm going with it is so I guess if you were to come across someone who is in this relationship and let's say. Uh, like the male partner is is struggling with quote unquote sex addiction and he has professionals telling him that he has a sex addiction and the woman is like well I'm going I love this person and I'm open minded and I'm willing to have um an abnormal relationship if you will or a non typical relationship will be an open relationship but this person is still 
like they're still going behind the the back. There's, there's still the deception. There's still the cheating. So for me, obviously like the relationship that me and my husband have is obviously very atypical, right? Like we, I shot porn for a bunch of years and that, you know, we had to very much curate our relationship and the parameters of our relationship. And we still had rules and we still had boundaries. I think a lot of people think that when you have um, an open relationship of any sort, that it's just like wild free for all. And I know a lot of people where that is not the case. Like there's just different boundaries. Um, so if you have this person that is saying that they have an issue with sex or an impulse issue with sex, and you have one partner that's so open and they're willing to have this atypical relationship, this open relationship, but there's still like the lying and the deceiving and they're still breaking those very broad boundaries. What's that about if it's not like an addiction? What is, I feel like there's something there, but I'm not a professional. So it's hard for me to, to pick apart. I would say it's hard to say without actually speaking with, say, this hypothetical couple, Mm -hmm. but I'd probably say it's the antisociality. So it's someone who only cares about themselves and they see other people just basically as a way to facilitate what they want. So it definitely, I would say, you know, I'm I'm monogamous, but with with people who are doing consensual non-monogamy, there can still be cheating. Mm -hmm. Totally. And and, uh, disregarding boundaries and... Um, so yeah, I would say that's, that's usually from what I've seen, that's what it is. It's someone who just doesn't have any sort of care or respect for other people. And the thing to keep in mind, if, if say your audience is listening and they may know someone like this, if someone has antisocial personality disorder, I mean, I would probably advise against diagnosing people in your life, (laughs) but say if they have been diagnosed or you've noticed certain things, um, that seem to stand out in terms of this kind of behavior where they are constantly pushing boundaries they are they really enjoy taking advantage of other people so even outside of sex antisocial people they really enjoy when they get one over on someone or they really have managed to uh deceive people they really take pride in that they'll usually brag about that those are huge red flags because someone who has this personality disorder it's not going to change personality disorders are with someone for life um, and so it's just about managing them. And so this person may not be doing that to you in the beginning, but I can guarantee over time that they will, they will do the same thing to you. So how does, how do personalities, personality disorders work with the new information that we have on neuroplasticity? So like the idea that the brain is malleable because has there been any changes in what we know about personality disorders or is it still pretty, pretty much the same as that? It's like you said, it's, it's permanent and the best we can do is try to manage it. As far as I know, personality disorders are still very much something that can't, there's no quote unquote cure for it. Mm -hmm. And I I don't want to, I want to be clear that that doesn't, that does not mean that we should, that does not justify any sort of discrimination against people who have a personality disorder. Mm -hmm. I do think that they deserve support and love just like everyone else. But in the event of something like antisocial personality disorder because it can be quite harmful to a a partner especially Mm -hmm. um that's one i would say is a little because i've spent a lot of time working with forensic populations in the past and they all had this and there's i mean forensic populations are an extreme example because they are obviously they've done a crime to the point where they were caught and and have been (laughs) placed in prison for it but uh, that's one of those personality disorders i feel you don't really want to get too get too close to. But um, I would probably, I would defer to 
if there is some research to show that neuroplasticity can change it. I'm, I'm skeptical though, because even with neuroplasticity, it, it doesn't tend to um, completely rewire, completely change someone. And because someone's personality, I mean, typically you're not going to diagnose someone with a personality disorder until they're in their teens, because that's, that's once someone's personality is a little bit more set, mm -hmm. but um yeah, as far as I know, I, I don't think it's something that can be overturned, say, with, with therapy. It's just something that will be managed over time. Do you know if there's any research um, that's happening with like psilocybin in personality disorders? I'm not sure. I won't, I'm very careful when I talk about the research. I would probably refrain from saying anything because I, I don't know. Oh, man. I, would, I feel like that would be so interesting. Like I would love to see results on that because you see what they're doing with like depression and PTSD and how they're saying it rewires a lot of the connections in the brain. So I wonder if that would have an impact on something that's that substantial because that must have been a trip, like <laughs> studying people that actually got caught for, for a crime with these um, antisocial personality disorders. Because when I was in school, that was always an area that really fascinated me. And I remember um, I would have professors that are like, are you sure you want to like learn about this? Because it can get really scary. And for me, like, I just found it so interesting. Just like, how does a brain work to, to do these things? Um, it's very, it's very dark. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can talk more ab about it. I, I, um, what can I tell you? I have a lot of stories. I know. I Please tell me, share. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's just, uh, for me, my decision to leave that area of research is because it was so dark. It's just over time you realize you can spend hours and weeks and years working with somebody in the context of therapy and there's very little change, mm -hmm. very, very little change. And it's, um, in a lot of cases, they have had very difficult lives mm -hmm. from day one. But I think it is a choice at the end of the day how you choose to treat other people. And if you are committing offenses, um, that's not acceptable in society. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. So I guess for our listeners, um, can you give like some examples of what like a telltale sign would be that someone has one of these disorders? That way, like, you know... I don't want to say like whether or not to like give up on the relationship, but just to like know what you're working with. Right. So if you know, if it's something that's going to be like a really tough battle and um, difficult to change, or if it's something else. I'm a huge proponent of therapy. I think therapy can really help. I think there should be no shame in therapy or in talking about mental health. So I would say if, say, you, people are dating and they come across someone who has a personality disorder, whether it's borderline or narcissistic or any of the others, I would say if that person has insight, that's really important. If they are aware that they are struggling with something or, or that they have a condition that uh, is going to affect their relationships and probably affects their functioning and their day-to-day -day life as well, that's really important because I think someone who has insight can work on it and, you know, you can have a very functional, happy, uh, fulfilling relationship with that person. Um, it, I think it's more from what I've seen in conversations I would have with people, both in my personal life and in research, people generally can sense something is not quite right if they are dating someone who, say, has a personality disorder in the, in the context of someone who is not managing it well or someone who does not think they have a problem or someone who's not in therapy. Um, so... 
in that case, you need to listen to your gut because I think you people generally can tell when something is not right. And as I said, you know, it's not something that's going to change. So if someone's justifying their behavior to you and if they're acting in a way that's really um, not helpful, not healthy, mm -hmm. then that's not going to be good for you. Mm -hmm. So touching back on like the porn addiction. Um, did you see what, what happened with like Pornhub? I'm they're a company like they're obviously based in Montreal. Um, and they had their payment vendors, uh, they pulled out. So like Visa, MasterCard, are like, we're not doing business with you anymore because it was one of those anti-porn, um, activist groups that kind of like pushed, pushed that to happen. So the result was Pornhub, pulled every unverified video that was up, which I think is a great thing. Um, so now it's only verified users can upload. So people that they know are consenting adults putting out material, which should have been the case anyways. Do you think um, with the tendency that we do have to kind of get like sucked into these social media traps where we're just like swiping, swiping, swiping for these like dopamine hits. And the same thing can potentially happen with, with porn is you just you're like something new, something new, something new. Do you think that it would be beneficial to have something like paywalls put up everywhere? Or do you feel like that, um, that wouldn't really make a difference? Like what's your opinion on, on, on like the tube sites and everything? So when you say paywalls, do you mean so that people are, they have to make a conscious decision to want to look at it as opposed to just mindlessly scrolling through? Mm -hmm. um, I think that'd be good for someone like you because it for would help sure. you, <laughs> make you make, help you make more money. But I think ultimately it's, it's somebody and, and it's their own ability to control themselves because I think in some ways it was probably good because it will help to lessen the chance that a child might come across that inadvertently. Mm -hmm. Although kids are very smart and if that is what they want to look for or find, they will find ways around it. You know, I've written about this before, how banning pornography um, is probably not going to be, or banning it for, from, for um, how do I, how should I say this? Just basically you can try all you might to make it more, try all you want to make it really difficult for, for kids to not see it. But if they want to see it, they're going to find it. That's just the reality with the internet. So it's better for, us as adults to have conversations with them about healthy sexuality and why looking at that is not necessarily going to be good for their sexual development. I think for adults, do what you want, but for children, especially if it's the first time they're learning about sex, I don't necessarily think that that's the best way to do it. Um, I do think it's good that a lot of that content was taken down because there, I mean, there are cases where it's abuse. I've mm -hmm. heard there are abuse videos on there. Um, I, I guess I get a little bit nervous when that happens. So because we're cheering the victory of this, but is what is the underlying reason why this happened? And is it coming from a place of people who just don't like us talking about sex or thinking about sex? Because that's worrisome to me. So I think there are a lot of issues combined into one. Mm -hmm. But I think also with, with the dopamine aspects, I mean, dopamine is released because this is not something I don't want to come at you for this, but like I hear this a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and with dopamine, it's released for a number of different things. I mean, if you look at a painting that you like, our brain releases dopamine. It's just pleasure. It's mm -hmm. not necessarily a sign that we'll become addicted to that thing or it's not necessarily a bad thing. So I, I definitely get because we've all been on social media, you know, just mindlessly and time goes by and you don't realize that, well, what have I been doing? Um, 
but I would say, yeah, it's just, I, I'm very much in favor of people being in control of their decisions in their lives. And I, I think being less dependent on say corporations or the government to come in and, and dictate what's good for us. Mm-hmm. So when it comes, so my, my biggest reason for, I think wanting paywalls, obviously besides like it would make every performer more money is um, I thought more about it after I had a kid or, you know, when I was um, thinking about the developmental impacts of a child, like coming on to that kind of material too early, are there, do you see changes in like these brain scans or can it have a, a lasting effect on their brain as they, as they mature? Because I think a lot of um, the anti-porn conversation is that if a kid stumbles upon this material too soon, it can completely wreak havoc on their healthy sexual behavior as an adult. I don't agree with that because I think it, I think as a parent, you have a lot of say in that. And Mm -hmm. if you are having conversations with your child about what's healthy sexuality and, and, um, as opposed to, I mean, porn, as you know, it's entertainment, Mm -hmm. it's not reflective of what, a typical sexual interaction is going to be like with a partner once a child is old enough to to be there. So um, I understand their concern. I mean, most kids who do stumble across or when they do see porn for the first time, it's not by their choice. It's usually something they didn't, they weren't aware of, or they're Googling something else and they see it, or sometimes it's in an email, they weren't expecting it if it's spam or something like that. Um, but it is concerning because I think the most recent statistic is something like 12 year olds, at least half of them have seen porn already. So, um, I think really, unless you, I mean, this is probably not going to make parents feel much better, but (laughs) unless you are rid of the internet, it's really, really, it's going to be really hard for you to avoid your child stumbling across this at some point, unless they're just not on the internet at all and they don't have a phone. Mm -hmm. So I would say a better way to approach it is to it's really important that your child feels they can talk to you about anything. And especially when it comes to sex or porn or anything like that, because that's how you combat this, um, any sort of negative effects on their development. But we don't have, as far as I know, I don't think we have any research to show what the changes in the brain might potentially be not in children, especially. So, right. And I understand for parents, I mean, it's, uh, it's probably not the most comfortable or fun conversation to have to talk about your, with your kids about that stuff, but it is really crucial mm-hmm. because I, I do think, again, I do think though for people who, for say someone who sees pornography at a young age and, and that changes their developmental trajectory to the point where they are interested in say being disrespectful toward their partners. I don't, again, I don't think it's the porn's fault. I think there are probably underlying uh, other issues there again, maybe antisociality, but antisociality comes from development. It comes from parenting. It comes from a, may, potentially maybe a biological predisposition as well, mm-hmm. but you can't blame porn for that. Yeah, I agree. I think that it comes down to having the conversations with your kids. And I don't think that watching content is going to completely shape like who they end up being. You have to lead by example. So are you respecting your partner and other people when you're around your kid? Are you being disrespectful? Are you like yelling at the cashier? Are you saying like, this is acceptable behavior or not? Um, But that's, that's reassuring because I think a lot of people like you, they're like, if my, if I'm not watching them 24 seven, then they, come across this material and it could ruin them. Um, but I think parents have a lot more control than people like to say that they do or like more influence, I should say over, over their kid than they think that they do have. 
Yeah, and I think understandably parents, it's uncomfortable to think that your child is going to see this material because you know, we obviously a child's innocence is something that I think should be cherished, but um, that's unfortunately the reality we live in today with with the internet. And I mean, I would say even social media, um, it's, you you can't, there's so many things that uh, I'm not a parent, but you know, I think have to be taken into consideration because the world is, is changing, it continues to change. And I don't think the way to approach it is to hide your child <laughs> in a closet somewhere, not let them see anything until they're 21. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when it comes to these personality disorders or like these, I've read it was like one in 25. Is that an accurate number? That sounds very, I've heard that too. It sounds very, very high to me. Mm-hmm. I think that could be traits. Maybe they're referring to traits. I would have to see the study where they got that number from. Part of me thinks it is, and I, I'm very much in favor of reducing stigma around mental health conditions, of course. But I think part of this desire to inflate the number um, is to to uh, encourage more social acceptance, which I think we can do without without skewing things either way. But regardless, um, you know, there are people who are struggling. So it's, that's important to take on board as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's important that all the listeners know, like no one, no one's judging here. Like, you know what I mean? We're just no. trying to have a conversation to spread like awareness around like these issues. And obviously watching porn for 12 hours a day is an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just trying to figure out like, what is it really? And then whether it's helping or harming by calling it an addiction. Um, for so, for people that are struggling with these um, with these issues around sex and porn, like what are some good like healthy coping mechanisms that can help taper off these uh, these habits that are kind of negatively affecting the rest of their life? Mm, I would probably say number one to seek out uh, a sex positive therapist if you can. So, um, I mean. If you go to, there are a number of resources I can tweet out after I can send them to you. That would probably be helpful. Yeah. So when I say sex positive, I'm referring to a therapist who does not pathologize sexuality. Sex positivity, I think, has come to mean a number of different things more recently. So when I say it, I'm referring to the idea that there should be no shame around talking about sex and that people who want to have sex, that's perfectly fine and healthy. Um, But I think for some people, there is a connotation that, if you're sex positive, that means you don't have sexual boundaries or that if you have sexual boundaries, that that's sex negative. And I don't think that's true. I think people should be free to have boundaries. I think that's healthy. That doesn't mean you're not sex positive. Mm -hmm. But I would say therapy would be very helpful to work with someone who um, is probably not. Well, I would would leave it up to people, but based on the conversation we have, I think they know probably where I stand in terms of different treatment approaches. Um, And then I would say... Just, just don't, I mean, as much as I can say it, just don't feel shameful about it. As difficult as that is, seek out support, friends. If you, if there is someone in your life that you can talk to about this stuff, honestly, I think that's very important. That's going to help you a lot. Mm -hmm. And just know that it's not, it's not, it is something that you can overcome for sure. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I think this was great. Um, do you want to tell our listeners how they can support you and any projects that you have coming up? 
Yep. So I'm on social media. I'm on Instagram at Dr. Deborah W. So I'm on Twitter at Dr. Deborah. So you can learn more about me and my book, The End of Gender, which I discussed with Candice last time mm-hmm. uh, at com. And also please feel free to sign up for email updates on my website, because sadly, there is a lot of censorship on social media and I have to resort to a mailing list <laughs> as if we're back in you know the 1900s. Well, good stuff. Yeah, and I'm glad that your book's back in Target. I was um, I was keeping an eye on that as all of that was going down earlier. So yeah, thank you so Not much yet. for your support with that. I really oh my gosh, of it. course. I think you have like a, a very important message and platform, and I'm glad that you're still you still have it right now. So thank you, thank well, you for having me back. Of course, of course. Have a great day. You too. That's it for this week's episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. You can also share this podcast with a friend. It helps my podcast grow and I really appreciate it. I hope to see you next week.